Welcome to Future Charlotte, the podcast where we talk about the people, issues, and trends shaping our city. I'm your host, Eli Portillo. From seemingly endless heat waves in the West to catastrophic floods from Kentucky to Pakistan, a drumbeat of extreme weather has dominated the news this summer. In Charlotte, it can feel like we're not on the front lines of climate change. We're not on the coast watching sea levels creep up or out West watching our rivers dry up, but we're seeing the effects here too. Hotter summers, heavier downpours, stronger storms. And we're going to see more changes in the coming years. There are few people watching our weather as closely as Brad Panovich, chief meteorologist for WCNC, and few people who provide as much information about our climate and post as prolifically and on as many platforms. Brad, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So let's set some baselines around our conversation here. How is Charlotte's climate classified? How do uh, you describe that as a meteorology professional? Well, you know, I, I jokingly sometimes call our climate here, well, it used to be somewhat Goldilocks weather because we were in that happy medium where we weren't so far north where we had really harsh winters and we weren't really far south where we had brutally long summers. We tend to get exactly three months of each season on an average year. Now, if you go to the climate classifications, Charlotte's classified in what is called humid subtropical. So we do get some humid, somewhat subtropical type summers. But typically, we have four distinct seasons here in the Charlotte area, which makes it a really desirable area to live because for me as a meteorologist as well, if you get bored with one season, by the time it's over, you get a new one. So you get some excitement every three, three and a half months or so. Yeah, it's funny. Um, I'm from Maryland and my uh, friends and family up there think that I live in Mississippi or something <laughs> like that. And my uh, friends and family who grew up in Charlotte and around here think that I come from, you know, Saskatchewan or the far north. But <laughs> <frozen> uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I feel like in the time that I've lived here, I've already seen and felt summers getting noticeably hotter, muggier, and frankly, grosser. Uh, yeah. Am I imagining things or are we seeing trends over that, you know, relatively short time frame of one to two decades uh, that we're already seeing changes in our local climate? Yeah, we're absolutely seeing uh, changes. You know, it's warming globally. We all know with climate change, it's warming everywhere, but it's not warming evenly. Some places warming more than others, some a little less. Now in Charlotte, in the most of the Southeast, we're warming a little bit slower than areas up North. Some of the worst warming occurring with climate change is occurring in the Northern regions where the impacts are much greater. Because if you think about the difference between ice and water, it's only a 10th of a degree. 32.0 is ice. 32.1 is water. So those small changes in areas where there's a lot of ice and snow, the impacts are much greater. For us, we're seeing change. We may not notice it as much because we don't have as much ice to melt. But for us here in the Charlotte area, of all the seasons that are warming, you're exactly right. Summer is warming the most out of all four seasons. In fact, I pulled the numbers this morning because I always like to update the numbers. You know, winter's warming about a degree um, since 1878 but summer is warming by about 1.5 degrees. So it is really warming. In fact, the one season that's not warming as much as the others is fall. It's autumn for some reason is pretty flat, but the season that we're seeing the most warming is in the summer. And it's just not the temperature. You made a really good point about it feeling gross. One of the things I like to look at is called the dew point. It's a measure of how much moisture is in the atmosphere. Well, over the last 10 to 15 years, we've seen uh, the muggiest summers on record in the Charlotte area, which means consistently dew points at 70 degrees or higher. 
So not only is it getting hotter here, it's getting much muggier, which means the overnight temperatures don't cool down at night. Warm, humid air uh, stays warm at night equally as it does during the day. If you have drier air, if you've been to the desert southwest, you know, they always jokingly call it a dry heat. One thing about that dry heat, it's really hot during the day, but it cools down at night because the air is dry. Here, what happens is we struggle to even drop below the mid-70s some nights for low temperatures. And what does that mean? I mean, I know from a, a personal perspective, it feels gross and, you know, I, I miss the cooler night air. Uh, but what are what are some practical effects of that beyond just saying, well, you know, bummer, it's kind of gross out at night? Well, one of the things about higher dew point air that makes it a little more dangerous than just high heat is your body, you know, the, the, the way our bodies cool ourselves is through sweating. Um, you, we've all experienced this evaporative cooling. When you get out of the pool or shower, you get a little chill typically because it's a little uh, drier. But when you get high humidity air, or high dew point air, your body really struggles to cool itself. So in some cases, these high dew point, high temperature days are much more dangerous to the human body for health and for safety. So for working outside, for exercising, um, it becomes really problematic. And because it stays so hot at night, our air conditioning HVAC units are working even harder at a time of day that typically they'd be slowing down a little bit because they also remove moisture from the air as well as cool the air. So it's really stressing our, our HVAC systems more than we typically would see. And it's also causing more stress on human beings. Uh, we're seeing more heat related illnesses, um, more fatalities. Um, you know, we're, we're now a little bit smarter with kids with practicing for high school football and other sports, not doing that in the middle of the day. But let's face it, there's a lot of uh, you know, occupations and careers where people have to work outside in this type of weather. And unfortunately, they're still uh, having to work out there and it's putting a lot more heat stress on their health. Yeah. Uh, you know, my son is not at football age yet, but he is at soccer shots age. And we, you know, this past summer had some it's too hot and muggy heat advisory heat warning. So no soccer shots for the kids. Yeah. And it's really important to point this out that of all the weather, um, you know, phenomena out there, heat is the number one killer in the U.S. by far more than tornadoes, flooding, lightning, all those things that we take very seriously. Sometimes we don't take heat as seriously, but it is statistically the number one killer in the U.S. year after year. It's heat. Yeah. And that, or when you talk about being weather aware and safe when you're hiking, I feel like the focus is always on lightning storms, but yeah, just the heat and the role that that plays in having enough water is something I think oh. uh, as someone who enjoys the outdoors and hiking and backpacking and those sort of things, I'm really going to be paying a lot more attention to. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, you know, that's, that's a big problem for folks that work outside is making sure you have frequent breaks, you have some kind of air conditioning fan and water, you know, you're, when you're sweating as much as you are, your body wants to keep sweating, it's not working. So your body produces more sweat, you lose a lot more water when you're sweating quickly like that. And so people sometimes don't drink enough water uh, when they're doing these outdoor activities. So we try to focus on this podcast on how the Charlotte region is going to change as we grow. We got really creative with the name Future Charlotte. Mm -hmm. um, what changes, what long-term trends are we likely to see in our weather patterns and the climate in this region? You know, obviously warming, heat, yeah. we've talked a little about that, but you know, if you put on your, uh, look in your crystal ball or whatever, what does it look like in a few decades from now? Well, one of the things that we're seeing, we're obviously seeing warmer temperatures, but as I mentioned, we're not warming nearly as many, as many other parts of the country. But one thing we're seeing here that's kind of unique 
and we're, we've seen a lot of it this summer, are extreme rainfall events. One of the things about having a warmer summer is warm air can hold more moisture. And you probably felt it with the dew points as we just talked about. But one of the other side effects of that is that we get more extreme rainfall events. We tend to get these really just crazy deluges of moisture. And in my 20 years of working here, the one thing that I can tell you meteorologically that is blowing my mind is, is a parameter we look at called precipitable water. It's basically how much moisture is in the, the lower troposphere, the part where the weather occurs. And we, we can measure this in inches and typically about one to one and a half inches of, of water in that column is a pretty saturated column. Well, in the last 10 or 15 years, I've seen numerous events of two and a half, three inches, three and a quarter inches precipitable water, numbers that I had never seen in my career. And these have led to events like the Florence flooding or the flooding in Alexander County or in Haywood County that, you know, unfortunately took the lives of people on campgrounds these really extreme rainfall events. And I think for a, for a city like Charlotte, which is already a flash flood prone city, we have only 3000 miles of creeks just in Mecklenburg County. Um, we have a lot of terrain and we have a lot of development. The combination of the, the, the development with impervious surfaces on top of these heavy rainfall events are gonna lead for, to a lot more flash flood events and people are gonna get flooding in areas they don't think they should be getting flooded or they don't live in a floodplain and they wonder why they're getting so many frequent floods. Yeah, that's um, when you look at the amount of impervious surface we've added thousands of acres, that's something that we're going to see, I'm sure, more and more of. So, you know, we're talking here about climate change. Obviously, everything it seems like these days is politicized and polarized and how we talk about it. And with climate change, whether or not people even agree it exists. How do you navigate that, especially on social media? Because, you know, meteorologists are some of the most trusted, uh, best known people in any media market in general. But for a lot of people, this is a, a really hot button topic, um, yeah. especially online. Yeah, it, I mean, it could be tough. Um I'm not going to lie, but it's. I, I think when I look at the data, I look at the data both uh, statistically, politically, and scientifically, um, I realize that a lot of those voices that are you know, uh, very forefront, it's a very small minority. Uh, one of the interesting things about North Carolina is that pretty much, uh, I think in every single county in the state, there's a polarity of people who think that something is happening. So when people think that this is a very polarizing um, subject, it really isn't when you look at the data because- majority of people think something is happening. Now, where the politics come in, and this is where I often talk to people, you know, as a scientist, I just look at the data. I don't focus on the policy. I focus on what, what's happening. Uh, the argument should be about the policy. I mean, that's what good government is. It's like, okay, how do we deal with the problem? It shouldn't be really about whether the problem exists or not. So I always try to make the similarity to poverty. Like, a lot of folks can argue about how you deal with poverty, right? Is it raising the minimum wage? Is it jobs programs? Is it the tax code? But very few people would disagree with one of those policies and go, well, I don't think poverty exists. No, we would all say that poverty exists, that we just have different ways to deal with it. And I think that's where we need to be with climate change. We need to understand it's a problem and it's something we're going to have to deal with. And there's different political ways to deal with it. And some could be to the left and right, some could be in the middle, but it's probably going to take all combined, honestly, because it's such a huge issue. We're going to need voices from the whole political spectrum to deal with this. Because the thing about it, it's happening whether you vote one way or another, what you think one way or the other, Mother Nature doesn't really care. It's just going to happen. And whether we try to mitigate it, 
or, or we adapt to it, we're going to have to do probably a little bit of both. And I think those things are what people need to understand is that both of those policies are going to be a big part of climate change. Yeah. And I think especially as we see more and more, you know, kind of undeniable um, direct effects, we're going to have more of a consensus, in my opinion, that, you know, hey, this is happening and needs to be dealt with whatever you think the specific policies are. I yeah. kind of think of Charlotte as um, an inland beach town. Yeah. Since we're, you know, three hours ish from the coast and everyone's got uh, their favorite beach places they go to return to with family. A lot of folks have beach houses and there are definitely a lot of effects there that are really apparent. You know, you go out uh, to the coast and you can see more sunny day flooding and, yeah. um, and things like that. So even though we are not on the coast in Charlotte, I feel like locally, a lot of people with uh, beach exposure, I don't know if that's a real term, yeah. um, <laughs> see a lot of the uh, of those effects as regular things in their lives now. Yeah. And I think, you know, the thing to think about just because we're on the coast doesn't mean those things don't impact us. Because think about Highway 12 there on the Outer Banks. How many times has that been rebuilt? Well, whether you live there or not, your tax dollars are paying <laughs> to rebuild that. So you should have a say in what's happening even in inland areas because the coast is affected by sea level rise and we're going to pay for some of that infrastructure to either deal with it or to mitigate it. And then inland, you know, we've seen so many tropical systems. I think people in Charlotte are acutely aware of tropical systems thanks to Hugo, unfortunately. We take hurricanes as seriously inland as they do on the coast because we know the impacts they can have here. And in the last you know, five to 10 years, we've seen a lot of these inland flood events from tropical systems, Florence, Matthew, um, Joaquin, which you know helped flooded parts of, of central South Carolina. So we're, we're starting to know that these impacts just don't occur on the beach. They happen all the way inland. So I think there is a, a, a cute a connection for most of us in the Charlotte area. So we're talking about these kind of big picture, um, in some sense, global issues, yeah. things like sea level rise, where it might not feel like Oh, we can do that much in Charlotte, yeah. or even you know that it's something um, lapping at our shores. What are some of the local factors that can have a big influence on the climate we experience? What are some things uh, that we can think about here, whether it's our tree canopy and how we protect that, whether it's dealing with stormwater runoff? What are some of the uh, local, really Charlotte area considerations uh, that kind of need to be in people's mind now? Yeah, you know, I get that question a lot because, you know, I do a lot of public speaking on climate change, which is really re refreshing. You know, I, I get asked to speak on this topic a lot. And most people, you know, they get to the point where they I agree something's happening, but what can I do? You know, that's the first question you get. And it, it, that's a really tough one to answer. But I, I'm one of those people. I think everything starts at home and with individual. You mentioned the tree canopy. I mean, that is one of the things that Charlotte is known for. We have this gorgeous tree canopy. And very few people can get upset about having more trees, right? It's just, it's everybody benefits from it. They help with uh, removing CO2 from the atmosphere and providing oxygen. They provide shade to cool. Um, you know, these impervious surfaces also heat up in the summer uh, because they absorb heat from the sun. But if you have more tree shade, that will help cool things down. They also help absorb water and slow runoff from those flash floods we talked about. So trees in general, I think, are a great thing. We need to plant as many as we can and keep our tree canopy healthy. The other thing is one of the, the things about Charlotte, it's it's a white collar town, right? It, there's not a lot of big factories. There's not giant smokestacks putting a, a bunch of pollution into the atmosphere that we can look at. 
our number one source of greenhouse gases here is actually transportation. Um, it's cars. And, you know, we don't we don't need to get to the point where everybody says, oh, I can't afford an EV. That would be great. But just driving more efficiently with the car you own, you don't really have to, you know, buy a new vehicle. People just drive very inefficiently. Jackrabbit starts and stops, taking too many trips. Um, we have a great transit system developing with light rail um, that is expanding. You know, taking that one or two days a week, even working from home, which started the pandemic, but from a climate change standpoint, is actually a great thing. One day a week, if we don't have people commuting into work, those little things, you know, over an extended period of time can have a huge impact uh, on our climate. The other thing is slowing down runoff. We talked about flash flooding. Um, the good, the good thing in Charlotte is they have been really proactive in developing um, greenway systems, uh, not only for us to get around, but for floodplains. Basically, buying up properties and allowing the greenway to be where the water can flood and not your home. So I think um, things like that are really, really encouraging in Charlotte that we're doing some things correctly. But as an individual, I'd say it starts at home. The little things, you know, turn the lights off, LED light bulbs. These things don't cost a ton of money. In fact, they actually save you money. On top of helping the environment, yeah, and a lot of them, some of them, you can even get for free. We got uh, our LED light bulbs uh, set from Duke Energy and um, changed them all out. And you know, it's kind of nice to know, hey, I won't have to do that again for years and years and years. On top of things like energy savings, so yeah, yeah, there's definitely uh, steps we can do at home. And um, you know, Charlotte's also a city of sprawl, and I think you know. <laughs> As a re former reporter who used to cover land use, growth, and development for a long time, and someone who still writes about that, I think we need to pay a lot of attention to how we develop in the future and yeah. whether we continue to build the kind of sprawling, totally auto-dependent, where you have to drive everywhere uh, city that we've built over the last few decades. Yeah, I think that, that I mean, I, I'm, to me, I've become a big fan of the light rail system. You know, I teach at UNC Charlotte in the spring in the meteorology department, and one of the great things about teaching there is, you know, you, you get a free, you know, cat's pass, you know, you basically can can buy and you get unlimited rides. And for me, living in South Charlotte, I don't have to drive up to campus. I could just go to the Sheridan Station Park and drink my coffee and listen to a podcast on the way up to campus. It's, it's, it's a great tool. And when I do uptown events, I don't have to worry about parking. I'll go to one of the light rail stations where I can park for free and take light rail into uptown. It's a, it's a great resource. And you know, the, we're, we're always in this battle, I think, in Charlotte about development and developing correctly. Um, and I think you make really good points that we've got to do it kind of smart. We kind of can learn from some of the lessons that other cities have had. But one of the things, you know, that I think, you know, we talked about the heavy rain events is that I've run into all the time is, you know, we just got to plan. We've got to pre-build things for our future climate. You know, we're already behind the eight ball in some of our stormwater systems because most of the infrastructure was built for rainfall in the 50s, 60s and 70s. And this infrastructure needs to be built not for rainfall in 2022. It probably needs to be built for the rainfall that's going to happen in 2035, 2045, 2050. So future proofing some of our infrastructure and let's face it, the electrical grid is going to be a big part of that as we electrify most of our vehicles and we get away from some of these other fossil fuels is going to be a big part of our development. And we have a chance to do that because we're so new. We can do it correctly the first time and build smart. So shifting gears a bit, uh, I think the last few years, especially the last year, I've seen more kind of technical terms in the news about weather uh, than I'm used to seeing before. And it seems like you can't really turn on the radio or go on Twitter without seeing a lot of, to me anyway, fairly abstract, uh, abstruse terms. So yes. I wanted to ask you about a few of them and, and just get some 
baseline definitions here. Um, wet bulb temperature. What is that? And why am I hearing about it all the time this summer? So wet bulb temperature indirectly is kind of similar to the dew point. And why is it called the wet bulb temperature? Well, if you remember old school thermometers, you know, the, the one that had the red liquid in it. And at the bottom was a bulb that was like the reservoir of, of liquid. Usually it was alcohol. Um, back in the old days, it was mercury. Um, and what happens is that's how you take the air temperature. That's what we call the dry bulb. The wet bulb would be if you take a piece of wet fabric and you wrapped it around the lower bulb and then you flung it around in the air, the water would evaporate. And whatever the temperature drops to as the water evaporate is what we call the wet bulb temperature. It basically gives you a humidity reading. So uh, the wet bulb temperature is basically the dew point. And it becomes really useful for your, your health in the summer. A lot of uh, school systems will use it. The trainers will to say, hey, should the kids practice or not today? Um, I actually use it quite a bit when I make snow in my backyard because if the wet bulb temperature is below 32, I can actually make snow when the air temperature is above freezing because I know I can cool the air down below the freezing point. Um, so for snowmakers, it's a big deal. For people who paint or want things to dry, that wet bulb temperature is crucial as well. So that's what it's referred to. We don't even use those thermometers ever, anymore because everything's a, a thermocouple or it's digital. But back in the old days, that's what we kind of use those old school thermometers. So it kept the name wet bulb temperature. <laughs> okay. Well, I know uh, a little bit more now, and I actually have one of those old school thermometers mounted outside that I can see. So maybe I'll take it off the wall and wrap some wet gauze around it and swing it around and swing it around, yeah. see how badly I break it. <laughs> um, a thousand year floods. That's something that I've been oh, seeing yes. in headlines constantly. I think I get the concept that statistically it's a flood that's likely to happen every thousand years, but is that actually it who determines that how do we know so it's a, it's a it's a statistical probability um and that they're recalculated every year but what's interesting there's two type of statistical floods um you might hear 1000 year rainfall event and 1000 year flood event those are actually two different terms and you're right to think that okay it's once every 1000 years but that's not actually what it means statistically there's a tenth of a percent chance of that event happening every year so um, if you think about a thousand year flood, it's basically per, uh, broken down to a 0.1% chance every year. Now the rainfall event is strictly based on the amount of rain on a spot. Like, so for uptown Charlotte, if we got three inches of rain in an hour and a half, that could be a thousand year flood or rain event. A flood event is based on how much water is in like a creek or stream. So like Sugar Creek, if Sugar Creek's water level rose to 15 feet, let's say, that would be considered a thousand year flood. The thing about the creeks though, because our basins and because of development, it changes all the time. The criteria for the flood events changes almost yearly because of development, the way the basin changes. So what was a thousand year flood maybe two or three years ago might be completely different today because development upstream on the Sugar Creek or development on the Sugar Creek would have changed the basin. The rainfall events are more static. They are kind of calculated over the entire United States using these big charts that calculate the rainfall from recorded history to now. Wow. Well, that mm -hmm. sounds like more math than I have the capacity yeah. for in my head. <laughs> it, it is one of those terms that gets thrown out all the time and people think it should, you know, because think about Florence and Matthew, those were thousand year rainfall events. They happened about two years apart. Um, and a lot of folks, well, what do you mean we had a thousand year rainfall event? We just had one. Well, you know, statistically, there is a chance of one every year. It's just a very small chance every year. And that reminds us uh, or reminds me of all the talks about statistical likelihood and elections that it seemed like we've been uh, living through the last few years. Yeah. So 
Uh, the third term that I've been seeing a lot in the news uh, this summer, and I remember it from before, um, Charlotte's weather radar gap. Uh -huh. um, do we have the worst weather radar gap? What exactly is that? And um, you know why? Why do we still have it? Well, this is this has been something near and dear to my heart for a long time. I've been trying to work uh, behind the scenes, trying to get a radar solution in the Charlotte area. Basically, what it boils down to is. Is it the worst gap in the country? It's debatable. There's other gaps, but it's probably the uh, the biggest gap for the most densely populated area in the country. We are the biggest city that does not have a National Weather Service NEXRAD Doppler radar within 50 miles of our city center. So uh, if you think about it, Charlotte's a pretty large city. It's a metropolitan area that's growing rapidly. And most every other city of our size or even larger has a, a weather service radar, a NEXRAD Doppler radar within 50 miles of their city center. Our closest radar like that is in Greer, South Carolina. It's between Greenville and Spartanburg. Now the airport, the FAA does have a small little radar called a terminal Doppler radar near Mountain Island Lake. That was installed by the FAA to help detect wind shear for planes taking off and landing at the airport. It was not intended for weather use. It was intended for airport use for the pilots, but we use that to kind of help fill the gap um, because over the Piedmont from between Charlotte and Greensboro, the radar coverage is very, very sketchy. And a lot of folks have radar on their phone and they think, well, radar is everywhere. Well, it's not. Radar is like cell phone towers. There's only a few of them around. And the farther away you get from the radar, it's like getting one bar on your cell phone. We're kind of in the one bar area. So we get radar coverage, but it's not the greatest coverage. In fact, the radar beam over Charlotte is sometimes between five to 10,000 feet above our head which is great for measuring big storm systems, but for tornadoes and small scale weather, it happens below the beam. And so oftentimes it's really hard to detect things in the Charlotte area because of that. And uh, if you're gonna ask me why that is, it, that's a big political question. Back when they reorganized the National Weather Service, there was some horse trading between senators of North and South Carolina and Charlotte got kind of left out of the, of the horse trade. The, the Charlotte radar and the Weather Service office was based at Charlotte Douglas. And somehow in the reorganization of that service at the federal level, it got moved to Greenville Spartanburg. One got moved to Raleigh Durham. One got moved to Blacksburg, Virginia, and the other one got moved to Columbia, South Carolina. So you can imagine where those are on the map and where we are. We're kind of in between all four of those and we're kind of in no man's land. Add that to uh, Charlotte, I think is also the largest city without a law school and without a um, medical school until the new one opens. So, yep, add add that to the list of Charlotte slights. <laughs> yeah, it's it, it it's it, you know, and how does it affect you as you know a, an average you know you know resident? It's it makes it harder to warn for weather, and so what happens is there and tends to be a higher false alarm rate because if I can't see what's happening but I think something happening. I'm more likely going to issue some kind of weather warning. I don't do that personally. The, the government does. So if you're wondering why we get so many warnings sometimes and it doesn't seem like something happens, it's kind of a that's kind of an offshoot of this problem. Uh, it's a big populated center. If I think there might be a tornado, I'm going to issue a warning. If it doesn't happen, great. But I can't take the chance because it's such a highly populated area. So we tend to have a, a higher false alarm rate for tornado warnings because we have a lack of radar coverage in the Piedmont of the Carolinas. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing because I have seen, you know, I get the alerts on my phone and yeah. it does seem like there are a lot and um, I mean, better safe than sorry, but yeah, that's, that's a interesting real world effect that I never even considered. 
and we hate false alarms because it makes you less prepared for the next storm. But the average false alarm rate for a tornado warning nationwide seems really high. It's about 70 percent. But in Charlotte, it's about 78 percent. Wow. So it's it's elevated here. So that means for every tornado warning, you know, only about, you know, 15 percent or less are probably actually verifying. And that's just because the radar coverage, we end up relying more on people, which is great that we have more people and social media helps fill the gap, believe it or not, because I will know immediately if there's a tornado just because I will get a picture, video, or a report of it probably on social media long before I would see it on radar nowadays. Well, I think it's pretty easy when we talk about stuff like climate change to fall into pretty bleak thoughts. You know, you see on the news stories about quote unquote doomsday glaciers and forecasts, you know, of how many 125 degree days we'll have in different places by the end of the century. And you know, it can all feel pretty grim. Uh, yeah. How do you stay optimistic and, you know, avoid being uh, uh, the end is near sine waiver um, oh. from your per from your perch? Well, I actually hate that because I think that does the disservice to it because it's not the end of the world. There's things we can do. We That's the great thing about climate change. There's actually something we can do about it. And yeah, our, if we stopped using fossil fuels right now, the warming's not going to stop immediately. <laughs> and let me just tell you that it's going to take years, decades maybe even a hundred years for things to go back to where they were, but we can slow things down. And the other thing to do is we can mitigate. We're, we're lucky as a human race where we are in, in 2022, we have the ability to live in the desert. I mean, who'd have thought Las Vegas would be where it is. We have the ability for to have air conditioning, to have irrigation systems, to have reservoirs. We actually have the capacity to kind of battle back against mother nature more so than we ever have. The problem is we can't leave people behind. You know. Um, the wealthier nations have the ability to do this. This is harder for people that don't have the ability to buy an EV, let's say, or to buy or spend the money on air conditioning in the summer, insulate their home. And that's where you really worry about the vulnerable populations who just don't have the means to do this. Um, but as a, as a, you know, as a society, we do, we can mitigate a lot of these issues with our advanced technology. And I, I'm actually, you know, pretty excited that some of the technology that hasn't even developed yet that might help mitigate the, some of the carbon capture technology that's out there um, that might be able to physically remove the carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. So uh, it's really a, an amazing time to be alive with the technology we have. And it might be what helps us kind of battle climate change um, going into the future. The great thing too, is the technology allows us to kind of sense and see what's happening in real time. So we have a really good idea how, how things are progressing with climate change more so than we ever had in the past. So as we come to the end of our time here, uh, two quick final questions. Um, first is, if you could change anything in Charlotte, if you had a magic wand, emperor for the day, whatever it might be, what would it be and why? And second is, what's your favorite season and why? Wow, that's a tough one. There's there's so many things I would love to change. No, <laughs> most of them always have to deal with restaurants that aren't here anymore. I wish Fat Burrito was so... <laughs> But I mean, I think the one thing about Charlotte, I think that I wish we could change um, would be 277. Uh, just, uh, it's just such a getting on and off. <laughs> it's like, you, you, I mean, you, you can look back at the city's history, you know why it was built, but it is just, it's a mess. I wish there was something we could do um, with, with 277. It's just, a, it's just a pain in the butt. Um, I hate every time I go uptown, I just want to avoid that. And running, you know, I got my Around the Crown 10K shirt on, which I love running on 277. Maybe we could just make it a permanent greenway so we could run on it all the time. I support that. 
As far as season, um, you know, I, I grew up in Ohio. I, I haven't lived in Ohio forever. Um, you know, I've been in the South now over 25 years, but fall to me has always been my favorite season. Um, my first passion of weather was a snowfall event. So I, I still love snow, but I honestly don't ever want to have six months of winter. Um, I, that's why I like Charlotte. I like getting just a little bit taste of it. I don't want zero. That's the other thing. I lived in New Orleans for a while. And one of the things I always said, yeah, I don't want to go back to six months of winter, but I want a little bit of snow. Um, so I think fall to me is just the best season because the weather's amazing. If you think about the beautiful fall color we get here in the Carolinas, um, in the mountains, even the Piedmont, those warm days where it's like 70, 75, and at night it's like in the 40s and 50s and you can have a, a, a bonfire or a fire pit. Um, that to me is, is my favorite time of year. And it's football season, which I love. Um, and you know, that time of year, my birthday's in the fall. So I think all those things kind of come together for me to make autumn, just like my favorite season. Well, I agree. My birthday's in the fall as well. So I'm with you there. Brad Panovich, chief meteorologist for WCNC. Thank you for the time. And, uh, for folks who don't already follow you, which I have to imagine is a small number in Charlotte, uh, where can they find you, follow you? and do all that good stuff. All right. I try to keep it consistent. So most of my social media platforms, it's um, at WXBrad. And WX is short for weather for people that know. It's more it's old Morse code for weather. So it's an acronym for weather. So WXBrad, some people even call me Weather Brad, but just at Weather Brad, that's on uh, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, even on TikTok. Um, so you can find me in all those. And then you can always find me online at WCNC.com. Uh, I know a lot of folks don't watch local TV in real time. But the great thing is even us, we stream everything and it's always on demand. So if you miss my forecast, you can always go there, our app and grab our forecast um, on your time and don't have to wait for the six or 11 o'clock news. <laughs> Thanks for joining us on the Future Charlotte podcast produced by me, Eli Portillo at the UNC Charlotte Urban Institute. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, and Google podcasts. If you like the show, please rate it, share it with your friends. Keep looking to the future, Charlotte.